0: Hello and welcome to the Come Follow Me Weekly Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. My goal is to deepen your faith in and love for Jesus Christ and His Gospel. I believe that when we understand and have faith in truth, that it will change us in an incredible way. You can best support these podcasts by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature and his voice, the teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you. Today we're going to cover the Epistles of John. There's going to be two verses predominantly that we're going to be focusing on, and then I will be doing a separate recording where we can cover a more broad spectrum of verses, more of an overview of the epistles. That way, if you feel like the two pieces that I'm going to be focusing on are not as pertinent for you and your population, then you can maybe glean something from a a more widespread, general approach, something there may stand out to you. So, the first verses that I wanted to cover were in 1 John chapter 4. Now, 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, it reads, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Especially that last phrase, God is love, is the part that I want to dive a little deeper on, because I think that these verses get misrepresented quite often. Not not as much, I'd say, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but even then, um, these metaphors can be misinterpreted in many ways so it's worth diving deep into that as well so as also it is significant to look at some of the language because there's going to be certain words that will just certain words that are richer in content and it's really useful for you as a student of the gospel but also one who's going to be teaching to spend time contemplating those i find that it's always a win and a lesson if you'll spend time focusing on the rich concepts. Now, love is probably the richest of them all. So even beginning just by asking, like, what is love? What is love? How do you define that? Can we define that? Is there an optimal way to define that? How do we experience love? How do we experience God? Um, When I was preparing my lesson, that was to me, the the primary question. How do you experience God? How do we experience God? Asking how we experience things is always going to be significant and always relevant. It's going to force you from using vague ideas that can sometimes be predominantly ideas that are intellectual and bringing them into a realm that is meaningful. The realm of experience is always meaningful. So, It's the most meaningful question to ask, how do you experience God? And you can even ask this in the past tense and say, how have you experienced God? Can you share an experience of how you have experienced God? You'll see that, you know, when you ask that question, can you share an experience? What we're trying to get down to is, to the realm of experience. As I said, that realm is always meaningful. So how do we experience God? Now, the verse that we just read is very relevant to this idea of how we experience God. God is love. So we're going to spend some time reviewing that and trying to dive deep into those, to that verse specifically and pick apart some of the linguistics, the etymology of the word love, as well as some of the cultural surrounding ideas around love both the Greek and the Hebrew now the other verse that i want to look at that's closely associated with this is first john 4:18 this again is a verse that is very rich and one that i think does get misunderstood quite often in general from all christianity i've met many people who had a misconception of this verse first john Four eighteen reads, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. I had to add verse nineteen in there because it's also a very good one, but we'll be focusing more on verse eighteen. So, the question that we first want to look at when we're looking at a metaphor saying that God is love it doesn't mean that God is solely love it's worth making that distinction because some people do not make that distinction and separate that God is an entity that encompasses love but is not solely love God is something more than just love so some people don't make that dis- this distinction that that verse is metaphorical so the word love is what i wanted to look at so we asked the question what is love and this is a rich rich word um in my book the divine nature the second chapter focuses primarily on this question of how do you define love and it surfaces the problematic nature of this because when we use one word love we're trying to convey too many ideas there's too many ideas conveyed in one word you know you can use the expression i love you and say that to a spouse you could say that to a basketball player that you're watching on television. You can say that about your television, you can say that about a plant, an object, a watch, a shoe. We're always expressing love for things and it's probably not fair to say that the love that you have for your shoe is equal to the love that you have for a child. They're different things and it's very difficult to make those distinctions and that's what we do with language. We're trying to capture different aspects of an experience and portray it in our language. So English has really gone awry with our words. So we have one word, love, to convey pretty much every span and range of experience included in love. In Greek, they have a few other words. So the Greek has words such as eros, philos, agape, and thilo. I'm probably saying some of these wrong. I may not be an expert in pronouncing Greek, but those four words. Now, eros. Eros, if you were to know your Greek mythology, eros is what the Roman name for Cupid was. Cupid was the Greek, I believe. Maybe it's vice versa. It's probably vice versa, saying as how we're talking Greek, and eros is there. But eros is a word that is specifically focusing on the sexual component of love, sexual love. Thelos is to delight in, choose, prefer, feel inclined toward, would, will, and desire. Probably the best word is just desire, thelos. Philos, you'll notice this word in the word philanthropy. Um, Philos is a term that means brotherly love. In many words, you'll see the word "file" in there. Uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love has that root in there as well. So that is the Greek idea, and it's a brotherly love to be fond of or to be a friend. The last is agape. Agape is quite interesting. Now, I've studied this quite a bit over the years, and it wasn't until recently in preparation of this that I was able to find a few more interesting aspects with agape. So agape is a unique word in that, as far as we know, it may just be a word started to be used by Christians. So it is a new word, which is fascinating to me because you have an experience you're trying to capture in a word, and there was already these Greek ones available, and they say, well, we don't specifically like those words. They, they're they not adequate enough to express the experience that we're trying to convey. So let's come up with a new word. Now, this new word is not completely foreign. It may be related to other Greek words. One of the words that they found in there was agapos, which meant to prefer, which would link it a lot more to telos, or thelos, I mean, Philos is that one that meant desire, so preference and desire have a lot, but I do like that. There's a verse that I'm fond of that uses the term preferring one another. It has a lot in there with selflessness that you can feel coming out of that aspect of preference. Who do you prefer? Do you prefer yourself? Do you prefer a spouse? Do you prefer your child? And life will test us that way, especially when we're looking at how this life is oriented as a test. To test our desires, test the desires of our heart, test our motivations. Preference will show a lot of that. So, agape was purely a bub- biblical word and is not found in secular texts. There is a Greek word, ago, A G O, would be kind of an Anglican version of those words. Now, this was quite interesting. Ago meant to take hold. And lead one another to their destination. It most specifically had a visual representation of leading an animal, particularly an oxen or the herd. So you're taking an animal, there's an aspect of touch associated with that, and taking them, holding on to them, and then leading them to their destination. And that's what the term ago comes from, and they believe that agape has some aspect of that. So when you think about love, you can put it in the visual representation of when you're saying, I love you, that I want to hold fast to you. I want to be connected to you and lead you to your destination. Now, personally, the one of the specific terms that I, words that I like to associate with love is connection. And the reason why I put love and connection closer together because connection has much more of the realm of experience like a when i asked before how do we experience god there is a sense of connection that we feel and when i use the term god is love and i'm asking what is love and what does that mean specifically the word that is most meaningful to me is connection when i feel connected to another person that i know that i feel love towards them and that love is of God. There's something divine and godly in our ability to make connections with one another. Now, you would miss that if you're taking that for granted. So if you're looking at this in the wrong way, you would be saying that the natural way of things is for us to be completely connected. I would differ from that. I would say that the natural way, the natural man being an enemy to God, is to not make connections with with each other. And you can look at the type of connections that are made within animals and say, okay, well, there is a certain aspect of connection that is found among animals, a cow, a dog, a cat, but there is a uniqueness in human connection. And this uniqueness, we often say, is not represented by purely a natural way. It is a spiritual thing. It's something that is transcending the natural and there is something in human connection that does transcend the natural love connection that you find within an animal. And we would say that that is a divine thing, that is of God, that is something that is in the core of our spirituality. And when we say God is love, we're saying God is deeply enmeshed in there. And it's okay that that is not something that is monopolized by a religious sect. It's one of those verses that we use to completely understand all people. I'll refer to this quite often, but it's found in the book of Alma, and you have a missionary preaching to someone who has no concept of God, no concept of the gospel, and that missionary, I believe, is Ammon. And when he's having this interaction with a king, the king starts describing from his own experience and says, well, I know of a great spirit. And Ammon is quick to say, well, that is God. Now, of course, he he doesn't use that as an opportunity to completely bash these fine doctrinal points with the king. Instead, he's looking for common ground. And the experience of love is going to be universal common ground. And for the Christian, we say, that God is found in there, that that is of God. Though you may not believe all of the doctrines that we have, you may not understand the totality of the gospel, you may not fully understand the love that you're experiencing. However, it is good and it is beautiful that you have that because that is of God, and you need to recognize that. So agape, going back to that term in Greek, agape, it's because it was a term coined more so for religious reasons, and is not found in secular. The the most that I could find associated with it was that word agō, which was this image of taking an animal and leading it to a destination. The word so there's lots of debate in the academic writings about agape. They usually just use it to say transcendent love, godly love, divine love. And in many cases, when you're looking at the analysis of when it's used, it has a sacrificial component to it. So a sacrificial love. Now, in going to the Hebrew, one of the lexicons that I was reading, they said that agape is the Hebrew equivalent, hard to say that, equivalent to ahaba. Ahaba would be the Hebrew word. And it's one of the Hebrew words for love. Now, just like in the Greek, there are many different words used for love that you'd find in the Hebrew. Some, in particular, are ahaba or ahab, chashak, cheshek, cheshuk, cheshuk, cheshur. So you can um, make fun of me trying to pronounce those if you'd like. Um, They're probably not perfect, but you can see again that there are multiple words used to represent love. Now, I like the Hebrew because they're very visual, and in their ancient Hebrew, they have, as they have in their letters, images associated with them. So the, the two consonants that you'd find in the word ahaba is a H and a B, like Ahab you have the H sound, and BAH, the B sound. Now the H is an image of a man holding his hands up in the air saying, LOOK. So you put your hands up in the air, you're like you're trying to explain something to somebody, your hands are up and you're saying, LOOK. Now the other, the B sound, I believe the term is barrel, and the H was HAY. I I might be off on the, the names of those letters. And the B sound is barrel, I believe, and that is an image of a tent. I am sure that the image is an image of a tent. So, ahaba, in a more literal sense, looking at the ancient Hebrew, has the image of look to the tent. Now, why look at a tent? Well, it's not looking at the tent in terms of the materialistic component to that. It's looking more at what is in the tent. And what is in the tent is the family. So when you're trying to understand what love is, and you ask, what is love? The answer comes in the ancient Hebrew. It says, look to the family. Look to the family, and you'll find your definition of love. Now, hopefully, you have a functional family where you can identify this. But that's going to be, I think, wonderful advice for you trying to fill in your blanks there. Where is God? God is found in love. And love, where do you find that? Look to the family. Look at the familial connections that we have in humanity. They are truly miraculous. They're transcendent. They are of God. God is found in them. You can look to the family, look to the home to find representations of love. And if you had a dysfunctional family growing up, I um, I feel deeply sorrow, sorrowful for that. But it lets you look to how do you want to arrange your home? How do you want to arrange your family? And you should hopefully have that desire to center your family on love. the family and the home should be a place of love and that is the idea of ahaba so other terms that we have are these cheshak Chishik, cheshuk terms that i'm going I'm mispronouncing for sure, and I really like these because again you have these images associated with them cheshak means to cling, join, love, or delight. Chishek, desire, or delight. Chashuk, attached, fence rail or rod connecting posts or pillars. Chishuk, conjoined, wheel spoke or rod connecting the hub of a rim. cheshur to bind together or combined, as in a hub of a wheel that holds the spokes together. So you can notice that in Many of those terms, they they sound similar because they're related words. But there is an image that's really strongly trying to get conveyed to you and is the image of connection. So if you imagine a circle, you have a spoke in between that, and that spoke is connecting the two points together. So when you're thinking about what love is, that's where I emphasize that love and connection have a lot of shared territory. So when I'm expressing that God is love, God can be found in those essential connections. God can be found in those essential and fundamental connections that are made through brother and sister, through brother and brother, through child and father, child and mother, and between husband and wife. All of those are there. Now, especially in the doctrines that we have in the Church of Jesus Christ, they truly emphasize this quite a bit, with the highest of all ordinances being a sealing ordinance and the whole idea of sealing is to bring two things together to make them as one that we are being sealed to god we're trying to become one with him and so when we look at what divine love would be is it can be represent it can be represented in the image of a seal you're being sealed with god just like the two points in a circle being connected through a hub that you're being connected to god in a in a very real way And you're also establishing a connection that you have with your wife. And that connection that you have between a husband and a wife in a marriage covenant, that seal gets made between husband and wife when they have been married properly. Then they have that seal established with their children as well. And so what is that sealing? It's all a representation of love. It's all a representation of agape. It's the thing that is found in the home. It is the connection, as you could see through all those Hebrew words. So all of that's very helpful for us when we're trying to understand what God is and how do we experience God. It's worth contemplating the meaning that you find in that. Now, in my work setting, I have many occasions where I'm talking with people who have suicidal ideations, and when you're asking them, You know, why not act on those suicidal thoughts? What keeps you here? The most common answer that you'll get is their family. So if you're looking at this as an idea of force and counterforce, there is this gravitational force moving downward that's saying, um, life is not worth living, I might as well be dead. And the only reason that that thought does not come to fruition in many individuals is because there is counterforce pushing back at that and you can't necessarily see that counterforce in a materialistic way but there is a force there that that is all being felt within the individual and what is sustaining them what is pushing back against that idea is a very very rudimentary fundamental force and that is love it's agape agape is what's keeping them alive and i have occasion on a daily basis to have people in a very different way testifying and witnessing that there is something there, that there is a love there, that there is a connection there, and that connection exists. It is real, it is true, and it is meaningful, and it is sustaining life. All of those things give witness on a day-to-day basis of agape, of godly love, that it is real and that it exists, and God is truly in that in that connection. Now, You don't have to have suicidal ideation to identify that. This would be an opportunity for you to identify that in you, in yourself. You'd say, what are the most meaningful experiences that I have? What are the most real experiences that I have? I love the the video representation of this in the movie A Beautiful Mind. Now, A Beautiful Mind has a person who has schizophrenia, and so schizophrenia does a Uh, a tremendous job of screwing up your idea of what reality is because it's associated with delusions, it's associated with auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, and when you're seeing things that aren't there that other people can't see or hearing voices that other people can't hear, that really distorts what reality is, and that's what was happening to the main character in the movie. Spoiler alert, there is a very powerful scene where he's sitting there across from his wife. You can even YouTube this, go to YouTube and type in this is real, a beautiful mind, and you can watch that, it'll do a much better job um, just watching that than me trying to explain it. Now, there's a moment that after all of the drama that had been occurring within the relationship, because his reality had been so distorted, there was even times where he almost accidentally killed his own child, because of the delusional and psychotic component to the schizophrenia. And this had just really put a huge spike in between him and the relationship that he has with his wife. But because there was an actual connection there, first you have to acknowledge there was a connection there, there was love there, that there was something divine and godly there, and that was being tested heavily through this condition. Now, he kind of is sitting off on, I believe, a a bed, and he's just staring despondently, seems hopeless and completely detached. and, And one of the reasons he's feeling completely detached is because he's Questioning the whole, he's questioning all of materialistic reality. His whole experience of reality has been thrown off course, and he's asking what is real. And in the movie, there's a moment where his wife comes to him and takes his hand and puts it over her heart and expresses that this is real. Now, I look at that not as a materialistic scene, I look at that in terms of, again, the metaphor that I am real the love that i have for you is real that is the most real thing now i like this in terms of a philosophical argument that you'd make that the things that are most real you'd have to say well look at how individuals are acting i don't care what they say now you say the rock is is real well and and, and it's real because it's material and you can describe it by using the five senses and and we use those five senses in a scientific way to identify reality however When you're looking at a more significant realm, that would be the realm of action, and you'd have to identify how people act. And it's in our actions that we're going to actually convey to one another what we believe is real, what we are persuaded is real, and that's the idea of faith. The word faith, meaning persuasion, it suggests that what persuades you is what you believe in and what you have faith in. And so even the term faith is asking you, what do you actually believe is real? Now, the most real thing that I believe and the most real thing that I can identify is the connection that I have with my wife and the connection that I have with my daughter, the connection that I have with my mom and my parents. Now, that I would say is real, and it's real because I'm conveying that through my action. I am persuaded that that is real because that is dictating how I am living my life, materialistic things. Now, if, that, if you truly felt like that was all of reality, that that is what all reality was, was just materialistic things, then that's actually going to start gearing you very quickly towards a suicidal idea because if all that life is is just material, that's a very bleak and hopeless doctrine and ultimately ends in death. So the whole concept of spirituality and religion is that there is stuff that is real beyond material, and love is probably the strongest, strongest argument that you can give for the transcendent, for spirituality, for the divine, that there is something beyond just materialistic truth. And it's worth noting that when you're observing the lives of people, real people, that they are conveying through their own lives and their the way that they're Conducting their lives that not that materialistic things are real, but that the that things such as love are real, so all of that is contained in first John four verse eight, in the expression that God is love. Now, the other verse in here that I wanted to break apart is first John four verse eighteen because it puts a I would say a little bit of a, a, an obscure association between fear and love. So I'll break it down little by little. There is no fear in love. Now, honestly, the first time that I read that, if I just paused there and said, okay, what does that mean? If it's saying that if, I'm, if I have love, then there is no fear, then that that love does not equal fear, I'm honestly actually making a very bad assumption because anyone who has experienced love would find that there's a tremendous amount of fear. In fact, loving another person, it really opens you up to fear, the particular fear that if I love this person, I have this connection. Now I have this fear that this connection could be broken. Uh, there's a an awesome part in the book Paradise Lost by John Milton where Eve comes to this realization Adam kind of gives her a little temporary fall in that where he said he, he warns Eve and says now Eve you be careful because God said that if we eat of that fruit we would surely die and then Eve says well that means my paradise it could actually be taken away from me now how can i ever actually feel comfortable living in paradise knowing that this paradise could be taken away And she starts to almost have like this panic attack. And Adam, uh, you can just see him smacking himself in the forehead thinking, oh, good gracious, what have I done? (laughs) It's okay. Adam gets the last or Eve gets the last laugh at the end of the narrative. So, but you have this idea that, you know, when you truly love someone, there is a tremendous amount of fear of losing them. And so that would seemingly contradict the verse or it would just make you have to come up with a new term or a new understanding of what the verse means. There is no fear in love. Now, some of that you could say would be more in a true phenomenological sense that the, the moment that you're experiencing love for someone, that moment, like, you're just experiencing love, that there is no fear at that moment. Now, the fact that you love someone is going to actually make you tremendously vulnerable to many things, and that will open up almost an eternal amount of fear. And so it's worth noting that both of those statements can be true. And so we're trying to get at this idea of, well, what, does, what is this verse actually trying to convey? Is it trying to convey this idea that, look, when you are truly experiencing love in the moment, in the moment that you are experiencing love, there is no fear in that moment. Or, you know, this other idea that, what I'm saying, that contradictory idea is that when you love somebody, it actually opens up to you a tremendous amount of fear. Is is this first trying to suggest the, for the, I'm kind of mixing myself up there, is the is this first trying to suggest that in the moment that you're experiencing love, that there is no fear? And that actually is just a beautiful way of describing that, because I think that you'll find that in many ways, because this would be coming from a psychological perspective. So one of the psychological philosophies is this idea of terror management. It begins with this first doctrinal idea that life is so difficult, it's so horrendous, it's so problematic and painful, that if you were to look at all of that and just truly see life the way that it is, you would be in constant terror. And so most of life is this terror management, we're just trying to manage the terror of reality. So what is it that ultimately mitigates the terror of reality? And that would be love. And there is a lot of truth to that, even in a secular sense. Because if the secular sense is the only thing that exists is material truth, well, the end result of that is terror. It's the terror that you're trying to manage in terror management theory. Now, they would say that you're just manufacturing um, meaning to to subdue the terror. thats That would be the materialistic description of that, that you are manufacturing meaning, whereas the, the believer in God and the theistic individual doesn't necessarily believe that they're manufacturing it. They just say that it is real, that there are things that exist outside of materialistic truth. Now, both the atheistic and the theist have the common ground that they're saying, well, in order to mitigate the terrors of reality, you need to rely on some sort of transcendent meaning. And most often, both theist and atheist, to be honest, most atheists will do this as well, that they will find some ground and grounding in love as something that is meaningful. And that's okay. Even though they may deny God, the God of love, the God who loved them first, who is the beginning and origin of love and may not completely understand that, the fact that they still hold love as a virtue is a great thing. I'd rather that they still have some virtue than none. And honestly, both they and us, all of us are together trying to struggle to establish our lives around that fundamental meaning, that fundamental connectivity, that love that exists. So that's one idea behind 1 John 4.18, that in the moment of love, that that actually mitigates fear. And we rely on that on a daily basis because it's the one thing that pushes all the torment of reality aside and allows us to live life in some with some degree of sanity and and how are we able to do that by pushing away fear by pushing away not even just fear we would say all things all the terror the thanatos the the death drive that that gets pushed aside by love by agape Um, the very freudian ideas when he was looking at some of the most fundamental motivations he used a fundamental motivation of a death drive and described that as thanatos now, he also used the counter to that and said that that was Eros. And Freud, if you studied his his writings and his ideology, you'd find that he had a very sex-centered mind. And so that's where he uses Eros as the counterforce to Thanatos. Not Thanos, sorry. Marvel gets in the way sometimes. Thanatos is in a constant battle with Eros and that would be sex drive, but it has much more of a survival mechanism. And if you're looking at human beings as purely just animals and materialistically, then you would probably draw that conclusion. However, if you believe in things beyond material, if you believe in the transcendent, the divine and the spiritual, you may want to use a different term, that that which actually counteracts Thanatos, or the death drive, is not Eros, but Agape. So that's my grand idea. I am arguing Freud's semantics. I prefer the word agape. Agape is the great force that pushes against the death drive. Agape, a more divine love, that connection love that's just like taking hold of somebody and leading them to their destination, that you do that with your wife, that you hold each other and you're, you're clasping to each other, you're sealed together as you're making your journey through life. You're making that connection. You're leading your kids. And, and ultimately, it's not the love that we have for one another. That's not the great, grand, divine conclusion of love, nor is it the great origin of love. Because what we learn in First John 4.19 is the idea that we love God because he first loved us. When you're trying to understand why we love and where did love begin, what is the origin of this transcendent love, the origin of that transcendent love, it begins with God, the love that he has for us. As we experience that, then it actually kind of educates us and and brings us to a point where we are able to be like light and shine that light towards other people. But the light that we hold up is not our own, it is the love of God. That it, Like a grand fire is the great source, and then we as candles are people bearing that light. But in this case, we're, we're going to use light more as a representation of love, that we are sharing that with all people. And that's what's all contained in the idea of God is love. So the other idea is, but perfect love casteth out fear. If, if we return to 1 John 14, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Now, as soon as I see the word perfect, I now know that this no longer applies to me because I am not perfect, nor would I ever assume that I would obtain perfection in this life. So one of the ways that you can read that, as soon as you read the term perfect love, you can now say that that is a representation of God. So there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. And what is perfect love? Perfect love is charity. It is the love that God has for all of us. It was the love that was on display through the life of Jesus Christ. So one way I read that is, there is no fear in love, but Jesus Christ casteth out fear. The perfect love of Christ, that charity, is what casts out fear. So that's another way of reading that. And I prefer that more than the phenomenological reading. I don't necessarily believe in that that was the ultimate idea trying to be conveyed when you say that there is no fear in love, that fear and love don't occupy the exact same space in the moment. What I'm actually looking at more so is this is a testimony, a witness of God's love, that that ultimate connection, that ultimate fear, um, that ultimately fear is going to be pushed aside by love in, in a sense of force and counterforce, that the counterforce then of love is stronger and that it is able to cast aside and push aside fear. And in and, and perfect love would do that in a perfect way. And for us in our imperfect love, we probably get that done in an imperfect way. But in the in the moment of a spiritual experience, you're going to have the perfect love of Christ do that in a very miraculous and tremendous way. And that would be one of those experiences that many people would witness of when they're describing their life, where they feel love come upon them. And that's one of those fundamental ways in which we experience God. Because fear hath torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, my, many of the translations that I read there were using the Greek term, um, We're switching the term torment with punishment. Now, that's one of the ways that you look at this. So, there is no fear of punishment in love but the perfect love of Jesus Christ casteth out the fear of that punishment. Fear and punishment go together. Now, there is one other way that I think that it's worth reading this verse. So the term fear in Greek, so these, these are your big words. Fear is phobos or phobon, and that means to withdraw, flee. It means flight, it is that which causes flight in one of the lexicons, and it can also mean panic. Perfect is a term, it's a very powerful Greek word that you'll find in many... Um, you'll find it in many secular ways because it's got such a powerful image associated with it. Now perfection is telos, not thelos, that word love that was desire, but telos. Um, we often describe that people need to identify their telos, and that's now worked its way into the secular world. World, Thank you, Christianity. But telos is to reach one's consummate goal, to be complete, to reach one's end. Now, tel, the T-E-L means end. It's the same root that you'd find in our word telescope. And when you have a telescope, you're at one spot and you're looking towards kind of the end goal the the final spot of that. So telos is to reach a consummate goal. Now it reminds me of a verse that you would find regarding the creation and the creation of all things as God was creating things, he created it and said that they need to fulfill the measure of their creation. It's he's he's now applying a telos to that. You need to fulfill the measure of your creation and and how are we able to do that? Well, there is a concept of time there, that there is this idea of progression there, that you're at one spot, and you need to progress and move towards a final spot. And that's the whole idea of telos, and that's what's represented in the idea of perfection. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are there now, but you will eventually get there. And so you have the the telos, telos, perfect love, the ultimate love, the love that we're all striving to get towards at the very end, the consummate goal, the measure of your creation, that that level of love will casteth out all fear. It will casteth out all fear of punishment. And so that may not necessarily mean, look, right now in your life, that's what you need to have, but it's actually setting the divine standard, the end goal, the perfect story. Now, right now, you're not at perfection, and it's okay to identify that and express that, that you're not perfect as you are right now. But you can state that I believe that if I continue in my life because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, he who has perfect love, who loved me first, because of that, I believe that at the end, at my telos, that that perfect love will cast out all the fear of punishment, all the fear of dread. And and that's specifically speaking to the ideas of feeling feelings of shame, feelings of guilt that perfect love will cast all of that away in the last day, the perfect love of Jesus Christ and his atonement, that you will you will see the perfection of that, though though now we only experience those in part because of our mortality and the mortal condition. We don't see the telos. We're not at the end of it. We're kind of more at the beginning of the stick. So that's one idea there. And the, and the last thing that I wanted to do is, so telos, agape, and phobos. Those are the three words. So Phobos, the, the points that I wanted to focus on there were withdraw and flee and flight. In one of the lexicons I read, it said that initially that's what Phobos was. It was flight. They were they were looking at fear as the outward manifestation, not so much the emotional thing. Because in America, we are way, way overly emotional and put those like tremendously high on the hierarchy of values like emotions, number one, and Thoughts, intellect, rationale probably comes in like 50th place. So, you know, many of us when we read that verse and say there is no fear in love, we'd say, oh my goodness, because I'm experiencing fear, it doesn't mean that I love at this moment. And they're like hyper-focused on emotions and totally, totally misinterpreting this whole idea. So that's why I like the idea of withdrawal and flight as opposed to the emotional component of love. Because the way that this is how I personally read that verse, for the most part, there is no flight in love, because love is a connection, and flight is disconnecting. And that I'd say more philosophically true than the idea of looking at this from an emotional component. Now emotionally, oh, how can I feel, feel fear and love? And it's like, yeah, I guess sometimes you can kind of feel a mixture of the both, which kind of um, contradicts what I was saying, that you may not be able to experience them both at the same time. But, you know, emotions are just a mess, and it's probably not worth reading verse 18 from an emotional, <laughs> at the level of emotion, that's not, you're you're probably just going to get everything wrong at that point. So the idea that there is no fear in love is there is no flight, that when you are connected to somebody, you're not going to run away. And I'm going to say that again. When you are connected with somebody, you're not going to run away. You're not going to avoid things. You're going to act and to maintain that connection, you're going to have to display courage. You're not going to break that connection. Breaking the connection is the big problem. Now, perfect love casteth out all fear, it casteth out that whole disconnecting um, entity that we'll just label in general fear, phobos, phobon. Love does not disconnect. Love is the connection. Christ, so when we're bringing this verse and trying to describe it in the sense of Christ, because all that verse 18 does is it's a witness of Jesus Christ and his great love. You know, we read, God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. God did not disconnect from us. He could have. He certainly could have, and he certainly thought about it, because he almost flooded the entire world in in the book of Noah, or not the book of Noah, but in the story of Noah, you know, there was a lot straining God to completely sever the connection that he has with all of mankind. But he didn't. He was patient. He maintained that connection because his connection for us is godly and divine. And when Christ came, Christ represents this whole drama in the most um, universal and dramatic way. He represents the drama, I know that's a little redundant, but Christ, the idea of his atonement is that Christ experienced the totality of human experience and said, how will I weigh the scales of infinity? How do I weigh the scales of all the horrors and sin and terrible things that human beings do? How do I weigh that against the good and the divine that is found in them? And Christ says, I will not disconnect. I'm not going to flee. I'm not getting out of here. I'm staying with you. I'm staying with the most vilest of sinner. I'm going to stay right by you, right by your side. And I'm going to take hold of you and lead you. I'm going to lead you to the end, to that telos, that end goal of perfect love. I'm going to try and maintain that connection no matter what. That is the whole idea when we're saying that there is no fear in love. It means that God is not going to break that connection. God did not break that connection. He maintained that connection. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a witness that that connection is there. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who in a very horrible and real way had to have that connection tested in the most dramatic scene of his atonement. And so in that moment, in that scene with Jesus Christ, perfect love, cast away all fear. It, he cast away all of that stuff that would cause you to disconnect from God. It was tested, and Christ chose not to withdraw. He chose not to flee. He chose to maintain that connection and cast out all fear. And that is a pattern that we have for us and how we live our lives. If you go back to in the, in one of the first recordings I had from First Peter where it said that we should follow in his footsteps and it was talking more in the context of suffering this also brings back all of that content because what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ is to look at suffering straight in the eye and say I am willing to bear this suffering, I'm willing to bear this burden and I will not Withdraw from the connection that I have. I will not forsake my connection. I will take on the suffering. I will bear the cross and maintain the connection. It is to look fear straight in the eye and say, This fear is real and this fear is horrible. I'm shaking and quivering at my very bone. I am feeling all of that fear emotionally, but I will not withdraw. I will not flee because there is no fear in love. I'm going to maintain and establish the connection. That's what we're supposed to follow when it says that we follow in his footsteps. It means that we are going to take the path of Christ. And the the grand act of Jesus Christ and his atonement that we are trying to emulate is seemingly, is similarly, not seemingly, delete the seemingly, similarly stuff. The act that we're trying to emulate in Christ is this confronting suffering. It's confronting pain. It's confronting fear. Maybe you could just group all of the negative emotion, all of those things that want to, that strain at you to disconnect. All of that, you could even just label that, I'm stealing that Freudian term, thanatos. All of that stuff that's trying to break the connection the path of Christ to follow in his footsteps is to confront that squarely and say, I will not withdraw, I will not flee, I will maintain that connection. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. I will maintain this connection, I will maintain the connection because God maintained that first. That was first expressed to me, and that. Love is so powerful, it's not just eros, it's agape, it's such a transcendent divine love that it is able to not just meet squarely thanatos, but it's able to override it. It's not an equal, equal thing, it's something that is able to cast it out completely in the end. And I do believe that. I do believe in the great love that God has for us. I do believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a gift as a sacrifice for the sins of man. I believe that in that act, God proved his love towards us. And Christ, the Savior of mankind, proved his love by not withdrawing in the Garden of Gethsemane and not withdrawing from the cruel cross which he was asked to bear. But Christ bore those things. He did that in a most no- noble and glorious way. And in so doing, manifested to us the glory that is found in love. He manifested to us that he will, not, he will not sever that connection, and you need to believe in that. You need to believe in that first in order to magnify and expand that love towards all other people. I do my best to love God because he first loved me, and I share this with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Your support for this podcast is greatly appreciated. Thank you. You can support this podcast by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature or His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you and God bless.